Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio, this is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Should St. Louis-based Panera be held liable for the deaths of people who died after drinking their charged lemonade? Their families say they didn't know it was highly caffeinated. Is that potentially Panera's fault? And what about the Missouri House of Representatives? They fired an employee who asked for a quieter workspace. He said the noisy office increased his anxiety. Will they now face legal consequences for terminating him? Well, today we're joined by three lawyers to help us parse the legal doctrine at play in these and many other cases. And that's because today is our legal roundtable. And joining us now to lend his expertise is Mark Smith. He's a former associate vice chancellor and dean of career services at Washington University, where he taught law courses for 30 years. He currently teaches social studies at Narings Hall High School. Mark, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks. Great to be back. And today we're also joined by Kalila Jackson. She's the director of legal services and senior staff attorney at the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing Opportunity Council, also known as EHOC. Kalila, welcome back. Happy to be here. Thanks, Sarah. And finally, with us today, fresh out of court, made it just in the nick of time, is Dave Rowland, the Director of Litigation at the Freedom Center of Missouri. Dave, we're so glad you made it today. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. So we have a lot of big cases to talk about today. I had sort of foreshadowed a couple of them. But the big news of the week, more breaking news almost, it happened in the wee hours Monday. A St. Louis police SUV crashed into a gay bar in South St. Louis. Now, the police initially told the bar owners they'd swerve to hit a dog. In the official statement, they said they were trying to avoid a parked car. Then they said they were distracted by the police radio. And once they were on site at the bar they'd crashed into, they said the bar's co-owner assaulted them, and they arrested him for felony assault. Javad Kazali, who is frequently a panelist on the show, he now reps the bar owners. He says there's video taken in the bar. It doesn't show an assault, but it does show one of the co-owners being handcuffed. Someone asks, what crime has been committed? Police officer responds, quote, a disturbance. The officer then walks towards the person taking the video and says, he's not going to yell at me. That's causing a disturbance. Dave, if that's all they had before handcuffing this guy, is that a problem? It's extremely weak. Um, So this, I think, falls likely under the heading of a retaliatory arrest. Um, From what I gather of the situation, and and the facts are still fluid, um, it seems like uh, the the bar owner quite reasonably um, wanted to know what the police vehicle was doing in their establishment. (laughs) Um, And uh, and, and the officer took exception to uh, the way that the questions were being asked. But but quite frankly... um, Expressing frustration with police officers is protected under the First Amendment. It's well established that that's protected under the First Amendment. And uh, I think that the police may be in for a very difficult time trying to justify what they've done in this situation. So I have to ask a follow-up question about those First Amendment issues. There has been a report that one of the bar owners did say something quite crass to these officers, suggesting that they had maybe been engaged in sexual conduct with each other when the car crashed. Um, Would that change their First Amendment rights? Can they say something that coarse to a cop? Absolutely, they can. Yeah, I I mean... (laughs) uh, 
police officers are not allowed to be shy, delicate, wilting flowers. I mean, they have to understand that they may encounter, uh, shall we say, hostile questions or, or uh, loaded questions in the pursuit of their duties. And they don't get to arrest citizens for asking those questions or using even somewhat questionable language, which I I, from what I've heard, I don't think that the language here was that questionable, although the insinuation might have been unpleasant for the officer. Uh, so, no, I don't think it changes the equation at all. Now, Mark, you have been the president of the police board governing right. the St. Louis police back in the day. Do you think Dave is laying this out properly here? Yeah, I do. Um, here's my caveats. Um, one, I think, as you said, the facts are are very much in flux. So we don't know what happened. And so a lot of this is going to be, well, if it's this, it's, you know, then this would happen. Um, and, you know, what I've read, it, it doesn't sound particularly good for the police officers. Having said that, you know, police officers come into a situation. Um, it's going to be, it's a bar. So you assume people have been drinking. They have to take control of the situation. That's difficult to do oftentimes. And um, and I think there's only two of them. And, you know, when I was on the board, I would go on ride-alongs with the police officers pretty frequently. I would just mm-hmm. show up and say, I want to go with this officer to see what they were doing to try and learn about it. And, you know, while police officers won't admit this, um, they're in scary situations a lot of times, and they're, they're afraid for their own safety. Um, this seems to be an extraordinary situation, though, where, you know, this how this car ended up in a bar doesn't seem to be, I mean, I think that's going to be hard to justify what happened. And, you know, I've seen some of the tapes where they were running a red light. Um, I live not too far from this area. Um, You know, you're not, I don't think you should be going that quickly. And um, so it's complicated. I'm going to wait to see more facts, but um, I, I do think that, you know, police officers need to take control of the situation. Now, whether that means arresting people, yeah, that, that seems a little problematic. So we have gotten a lot of questions about various facets of this incident and what is publicly known about this incident, which, again, is is there's a whole lot yeah. of questions we don't know. But um, if you have a question or comment about it, you can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Here's a tweet. Uh, Ty writes, I would love to hear the panel's take on qualified immunity, in which ways it does or does not apply to situations like this RPM scenario, um, if there's any uh, municipal or county level laws or policies relevant to how these cases are treated in the courts here. Uh, you know, Javad Kazali is known for being a very aggressive litigator. I imagine he's planning to sue the city over this. Dave, can they say qualified immunity? Our job involves uh, smashing into this bar. They can certainly raise that as a defense. And um, a lot depends on the details as to whether the the defense would be legitimate. Um, there is, as I mentioned, a, a good bit of case law. Um, saying basically that you can't arrest somebody just because they say something offensive to a police officer. There's a, a landmark U.S. Supreme Court case uh, where a guy was wearing a jacket that said, F the police, um, and he got arrested for it. And the Supreme Court came back and said, no, you absolutely can't arrest people, even if you find this offensive. Mm. Um, you can't arrest people for this. And so I would think that generally speaking, that would be considered um, a sufficiently compelling and established precedent that as long as the facts are limited to the arrest being predicated by 
the words that were used by the bar owners, um, then then I think qualified immunity would likely not apply. But there may be complicating factors that I currently am not aware of where maybe the courts say, all right, qualified immunity does apply here. Yeah, I mean, there you know, the police have alleged that this guy shoved them hard. Um, and that would certainly, if true, if true, you know, that could make a big difference here. One of the things that's generated a lot of discussion, the police did not administer any toxicology test on the officer who was driving. I assume if I crashed my car into a business that they would probably test me to see if I've got drugs or alcohol. Kalila, do you think there would be reasonable suspicion where they should give this kind of test to the driver? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a, a concern that that uh, field test wasn't done. Um, I think that uh, what we're going to see, as uh, Dave and Mark had pointed out, that as this goes through the courts, I think those are going to be questions that the judge is going to have. And we'll see if really these charges will pass scrutiny and in what we can only assume maybe the civil case to follow, those are going to be questions that the the, the PD is going to have to answer about why what seems like routine protocols were not followed in this instance. Because if, as the facts are playing out, as we see them now, uh, the officer's actions created a significant public danger. And even when uh, officers are involved, that, that duty to the public still attaches. So I think those questions are going to have to be answered sooner rather than later. So I think with this, you know, the the one of the majors, I think, or um, somebody uh, at the police department said, uh, you know, there wasn't evidence <clears throat> And so it's up to the discretion of the officers. And, you know, I'm sure every time somebody's involved in a, uh, just a regular citizen's involved in an accident, they don't always do a, a breathalyzer. Plus, you have to consent to it. And so, but this does seem like an extraordinary situation where you have this car. It's interesting when you look at, like, private industry and some other places, there are some places that say if you are involved in a major kind of accident at work, you have to take either um, a drug or alcohol test. Although OSHA has come out saying, well, we don't like it to be routine because then that may discourage people from filing their their, oh, their, their work-related work injuries. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but if but, I'm a forklift operator and I crash my company right. vehicle, I imagine the company wants yeah. me tested. And in, in this case, you know, it just, you've got police looking out for police. Even if that's not the case, that's certainly the perception in the public, mm-hmm. and and it would. And I know some police departments do have policies where if you're involved in an accident, you routinely have to do that and have to submit. Now they still, you know, and people forget this. Police officers also have first or uh, constitutional rights against self-incrimination and everything. So it's not like you can always require it. Um, but it's re- just complicated. Yeah, so you can't always require it. But if you but had this reasonable suspicion, you right. could. It sounds like you're saying this could go either way, but you could see reasonable suspicion case, here. Am I oh, summarizing yeah, this? Yeah, I, I yeah. think so. And I think maybe just to have a policy to say anytime you're involved in a, a vehicle accident, you should have to submit a, a blood sample or something might not be a bad idea. It sounds like a great policy yeah. to me. Um, another case, you know, there's the case of, I mean, there's this is like a law school exam, this fact pattern, because there's so many potential issues. <coughs> Excuse me. One, one issue is, do they get to sue the city of St. Louis? Because these police officers are young police officers. 
they probably don't have a lot of money. They were apparently probationary officers, not even full-fledged right. officers yet. So they're going to sue the city of St. Louis. The city of St. Louis has sovereign immunity because it's a but there's an exception for uh, for vehicle crashes, but there's a limit on it. <coughs> so I think we're going to see some interesting. Um, you know, you've got the you've got the crash, so that's one tort. You've got this arrest, that's another, and that could be a 1983 action. Um, and then you've got, you know, what's happened afterwards. That if there's some kind of um, you know, if these probationary officers get fired, mm-hmm. we could have some kind of employment discrimination. So this is just like chock full. And like I said, the facts keep evolving. Yeah. So who knows what's going to happen. Here's another one. This one came in from Twitter, something I hadn't yeah. even thought about. You know, an interesting fact of this case is that the bar owners lived upstairs. They lived on top of the bar on the second floor, and then they ran the bar right. on the first floor. Nathan asks on Twitter, quote, I'm curious if Castle Doctrine would protect the bar owner from any action he took against invaders on his property. The bar is also his home. No one could argue these cops were operating officially by crashing into his property and perhaps even assaulting him. Dave, any thoughts on whether Castle Doctrine could be a technique that a savvy lawyer would think about using? Um, I, I, it's a clever thought. I don't think it would likely apply here uh, because it doesn't appear that anything that happened was self was in self defense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's usually when the Castle Doctrine would be invoked. Um, and so, for example, going down and if the bar owner shoved a police officer again, um, you know. If he was saying, I needed to shove the officer in order to protect myself in some way, maybe you could make a Castle Doctrine uh, argument that use of force was authorized if um, if there was not the suggestion that uh, a, a shove was necessary for protection, then uh, I don't think it's And he clearly knew it was a police officer at yeah. that time. Yeah, no. my, my understanding is they were in, they uniform. Were in uniform. It was It was... Yeah. Police vehicle that was sitting in their in their but bar. It, I had not thought about this, but this is interesting. If instead it's dark, he comes down and there are just two figures in the bar. Mm-hmm. Would he get to shoot them? Uh, you know, you, <laughs> well, you, you, you hate know, to put it that way. Thank but. God. You know, this is in St. Louis. We should not count on the fact that no one will open fire. But it, this situation would be so much worse and, if and someone Ms. had oh, open yeah. fire. Yeah. So and Missouri has least. such a broadly protective Castle Doctrine yeah. law about the use of firearms, including extending to protecting your vehicle. These bar owners really maybe out. would have been better off shooting. Well, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm no. joking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. That's a terrible joke. I, I should not even joke about that. Here's another question, Mark. I'm wondering if you have any insight into this. Uh, Jeremy asks on Twitter, can they slash can't they slash should they release body cam video? You, oh. The governor himself has now yeah. suggested he'd Absolutely. like to see them release it. Governor Parson, who saw that coming? Yeah, I think everyone would like to see it. You know, we, we've talked about body cams on the show a few times. And, and you know, everyone thinks, well, let's just see it. The, um, you know, imagine, though, a situation. And I think in this case we should. And I, I don't see these, these two um, men who own the bar objecting to it. No. I can imagine a situation where a police officer comes into my home, has a body camera, camera on, and I don't want what's shown there because it may incriminate me and it may, it may, may be an invasion you. of my privacy. Right. But I don't think that's the issue here. Yeah. So, so. I, what I'm hearing is they're saying because it's under criminal investigation, because this bar yeah. owner is facing criminal charges, we can't release it. So I, it's actually fairly complicated, but I think that may be the legally correct answer. Mm-hmm. So the Sunshine Law... Um, 
allows for the release of these mobile camera recordings under limited circumstances, and they do not appear to include if the police department is okay with the release of the records. Um, what the what the Sunshine Law says is someone who is involved in the incident or, or their property was involved in the incident, they have a right to have access to records, even if they would be closed records. So mm-hmm. the bar owners in this case, I think they've got a pretty clear-cut right to access these records themselves. But let's say that they haven't done that yet. Sure. Um, and a news organization wants to obtain the records. The news organization would have to go to the courts and ask for the release of these recordings. Mm-hmm. Then the question is, would the law enforcement agency object? If the law enforcement agency did not object, then the the law requires the, the judge to go through a list of factors mm-hmm. in deciding whether the recording is going to be released. If the, the law enforcement agency said, we're okay with this, in all likelihood, the, j- the judge would say, okay, I've satisfied all the factors. We're going to release the records. Um, but if the law enforcement agency objects, then... Maybe the judge says, I haven't been able to satisfy all the factors to justify the release. And then, very unusually, the Sunshine Law allows a judge to order the plaintiff to pay for the government's attorney fees. Whoa. If they are, if they ask for a, a recording like this. So that's a huge disincentive for anybody to ask for these recordings because if the judge disagrees, then they may end up being on the hook for paying for the uh, the government's attorney's fees wow. in that situation. So yeah, um, I would advise uh, the, the bar owners to request the information and the recordings under 610.100. I think they've got a clear right to them. And then as long as the recordings do not show third parties not employed by the the law enforcement agency, I think they then have the right to share that recording with anyone that they want to. Hmm. Well, I hope that this this ends up being the case. I always like to get all the information I can. Those body cam recordings are going to be fascinating. Kalila, there is so much at play in this case right now. So many different fronts where this could move forward. What are you going to be looking at as this case moves forward? Well, I'm really looking to um, the judge's uh, reaction. So I think uh, the the fact that uh, uh, this bar owner was released essentially on his own recognizance after uh, a hearing uh, suggests that the court uh, has some concerns with the evidence that uh, the defense has been able to collect and muster at this time about whether or not the state or the city in this case is going to be able to make that meet its burden. So what I'm really interested in is as this, uh, as the criminal case proceeds, uh, whether or not this is going to result in maybe a dismissal, maybe the prosecutor will decline to continue the case, or whether they are going to push through uh, a, possibly a full trial in this matter. So so I'm, I'm really looking to see what's coming next out of the court. I think that's smart. And, you know, they have already, the prosecutors has reduced what the police put in as a felony to a misdemeanor. It's interesting. We're talking today to our legal roundtable. That's Kalila Jackson. We're also joined by Mark Smith and Dave Rowland. Need to take a quick break here. When we come back, the Missouri Supreme Court tosses out a bill that would make unauthorized camping on state land a crime. And after that, we'll talk about lawsuits over Panera's charged lemonade. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. I'm Sarah Fenske, in for Elaine Cha, hosting our Legal Roundtable. Today we're joined by Mark Smith, a former Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. He's currently teaching social studies at Narangs Hall High School. We're also joined by Dave Rowland, Director of Litigation at the Freedom Center of Missouri, and Kalila Jackson, Director of Legal Services and Senior Staff Attorney at the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing Opportunity Council. Now, this past week, some more news. Uh, The Missouri Supreme Court weighed in on a case involving unauthorized camping on state land. This was a unanimous verdict. It tossed out the state law. The justices says this law, say this law, is, quote, invalid in its entirety. Dave, what's going on? So the the legal issue, the constitutional issue at at the heart of this is um, a provision in the Missouri State Constitution that limits how the General Assembly can go about passing laws. Um, One of the things that our Constitution was designed to do was to prevent log rolling, to prevent um, a very popular bill having a bunch of amendments thrown onto it that were not really related to the original topic of the bill. And this is important because um, it, it, if you if you have this kind of log rolling, you can have all sorts of backroom deals made um, where policies that don't necessarily have the real full support of the legislature end up getting passed because they've been tacked onto a have-to-pass bill. So um, this is prohibited by the state constitution, but that restriction has Mm, historically been unevenly enforced by uh, the Missouri Supreme Court. In this situation, though, um, it was clear the the original subject of the bill was political subdivisions. Um, and in the process of passing the bill, there were a number of amendments that were tossed on that really did not have anything to do with political subdivisions. And so when the court looked at this, they said, um, this pretty clearly violates the single subject rule of, of the Missouri Constitution. And although there are circumstances under which we can save parts of a bill that have been improperly passed like this. In this situation, nobody made any effort to make the factual showing that you need to to save those other parts of the bill. Therefore, the entire thing comes down. Mm -hmm. Um, As a state constitutional stickler, uh, I'm really glad to see this because I think it's important that the General Assembly follow the correct procedures. They're there for a reason, Um, but there's also the uh, the collateral damage of there were parts of this bill that I know were very important to a lot of people that now they're going to have to go through the process again if they're ever going to go into effect. And these were parts that had nothing to do with this unauthorized camping right, on correct. state land that, that caught the attention of many people here in St. Louis. Kalila, even though the people Dave knows are sad about this other part of the bill being tossed, there has been rejoicing among housing advocates. I'm elated. Yeah, um, there are a lot of people... Um, for the, really the same reason that Dave pointed out, this uh, this bill was really added on at, at the in the eleventh hour um, and uh, caught advocates like Mike, myself, and Art City, and, and other people at Action who have been working tirelessly on um, behalf of, of the unhoused community. Uh, this caught us by by surprise, and so I. 
while I am uh, understand the, the impact of the collateral damage, is the impact that this bill, if it had been left untouched, uh, would have done untold damage to our unhoused brothers and sisters in this community. Um, and so the reason why you saw Eden Village step forth is because this bill would have hampered the ability for uh, service providers to be able to provide the critical services that are underfunded, uh, they're, they're unmet already. It would have hampered the ability to provide those services both on individual private levels and also at the government level. Mm -hmm. And so it is important that this bill was struck down. And if they're going to reenact it, it needs to stand on its own merits. Then the people, they need to get the sufficient number of votes and prop, follow the proper procedures. But um, for my part, um, and I know many others, we were uh, happily, uh, in my case, happily surprised um, to see this uh, ruling because it has been, uh, this issue has been raised in other circumstances and there has been this uneven enforcement. But mm -hmm. for housing advocates and people who care about people, this was a, a major win. Mm -hmm. So another issue involving the Missouri House of Representatives, however, in this case, we're not talking about their ability to pass legislation lawfully. We're going to talk about what it's like to work there when they're your employer. A man named Eric Qualls sued the Missouri House of Representatives, which had been his employer. He said he suffered from ADHD and generalized anxiety disorder. He sought a quieter workplace to accommodate that disability. But instead of offering that accommodation, they fired him. He sued. Not only did he win a verdict of $2 million, but when they appealed, most recently, he just won at the appellate level, too. Kalila, what did his employer, the Missouri House of Representatives, what did they do wrong here? Uh, the court really took the HR person who was a, a mastered and degreed, uh, an intelligent person, really took her to task for her failure to acknowledge and recognize that uh, the requests that this uh, this person made, Mr. Qualls, were reasonable and fair. And even if um, employers uh, or and, and also reasonable accommodations, uh, accommodations also apply in the housing context. So what the court said is, uh, just because something is is uh, you may not want to do something, that we have to remember that when we are we're dealing with people who have uh, persons with disabilities, that they have legal rights, they have obligations, and those have to be carefully considered and if there are not uh, you know burdens uh, or uh, it's significant or substantial burdens that are associated with that then employers just can't cast aside those requests and in this case um, the House of Representatives took the uh, the furthest that they also terminated this person so when you see a two million dollar uh, judgment this is not just for the failure to accommodate but it's that uh, that really bad behavior that we want to discourage all employers from engaging in. This person made an accommodation request that the court found was really frankly patently reasonable, mm -hmm. gave them a number of options, and instead of you know doing that work and rising to the occasion, they terminated him. And so I think what this shows is a, a clear statement that the Supreme Court um, is still in the business of enforcing, you know, the Missouri uh, Human Rights Act, and uh, they're they're watching and, and paying attention.
tangent. So, Dave, this part caught my attention. You know, in the process of many requests for these accommodations, reasonable type accommodations, um, you know, he's again asking for it. And they're like, eh, I don't know. And he says, maybe I should go to the Missouri Human Rights Commission. <laughs> and they just fired him on the spot. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, they just opened themselves up. No wonder they lost this. But it's not necessarily quite that simple. Well, not so there had been earlier rulings saying that um, just mentioning that you may take a case to the uh, to the Human Rights Commission uh, is not by itself um, a, a indication or at least the firing of someone who's made this comment. Um, that's not in, in itself an indication that their rights have been violated. But uh, I think that this case really demonstrates the importance of a good set of facts. Um, and and the, the court went into great detail talking about the facts here that this was a worker who had gone above and beyond. Like, he was really working as hard as he could to do a good job within the confines of his disability. And um, when he was accommodated, he actually was doing a pretty good job. And, and so with that excellent set of facts combined with when he mentioned, hey, look, maybe I need to go talk to these guys, you know, and then the immediate firing, I think that that combination of facts uh, really led to uh, the uh, the House of Representatives getting hammered in yeah. this case. Hammered is the right word. Justifiably so. Yeah. yeah. So this brought to mind for me a news story that I also read in this past month involving former state representative Maria Chappelle Nadal and her anger at her former employer, which is St. Louis County Councilwoman Rita Hurd Days. Chappelle Nadal filed complaints with the Missouri Human Rights Commission and also the EEOC. She had a lawyer draft a lawsuit. It led to a $77,000 settlement. And then after they settled, she shared the draft lawsuit with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Somewhat of an unusual sequence right there. But she says, uh, the former state representative Maria Chappelle Nadal, says the county failed to accommodate her mental health needs. And in the, the draft complaint, they talked about the need to work remotely, the need to have an emotional support dog at work. Mark, if my employee wants an emotional support dog, do I have to let them have an emotional support dog? Yeah, I think an emotional support dog. Now, whether or not you have to let them work remotely, I think would depend on the the nature of the job and everything. But, I mean, I, I you know, I can imagine a situation where you're, you know, it's just the two of you working, you're allergic or something. Yeah, okay, well, what if I don't that, like dogs? Come well, on. <laughs> If you don't like dogs, you may be out of luck, you, you'd, <laughs> unless you have some kind of phobia or something. That, I mean, if you just are not a dog person, I'm not sure that's going to be enough. You have to accommodate. All right, say I have person. an allergy. Yeah. If you have an allergy, maybe we'd have to look for some other type of, because you have then a medical condition that, um, so we have two. Yeah, this seems so complicated yeah, for employers. Is. And that's, uh, you know, this particular set of facts in this county case does not feel maybe quite as clear cut as what we saw in the it, House it of is kind of, You know, case. I'm very sympathetic to these plaintiffs. But as a former, and this is a long time ago, um, I was a, you know, management side uh, labor and employment lawyer. And, you know, the typically the employers are not uncaring. They're just like, we got to do something. We got to make widgets here, and we got to figure out a way to make widgets and make money. That's what we're about. And so, it's you're sympathetic, although the bar on the particularly the um, disability, it's you have a very high duty to accommodate. The employer does, and mm-hmm. so um, I mean something where you're allergic that might meet the bar. But if it's just expensive, 
Yeah. Unless it's going to put you out of business, you got to do it. Dave? So one of the other factors in this situation that I thought really stood out was um, Maria was also being uh, criticized for her public statements about policy issues. Absolutely. And and Maria has been known for years as a very passionate advocate, particularly for those who are affected by radioactive waste in her district. Um, and, And she had made some pretty pointed criticisms of members of the St. Louis County government, and she was told she could no longer do that. Um, Mm -hmm. She had been on a podcast, and they had said, you're no longer allowed to go on this podcast. Now, there are certain circumstances in which public employees can have limits put on uh, what they say publicly about about matters of public importance, but they're limited. Mm -hmm. And and I think that um, the fact that there is a settlement for $77,000 in Maria's favor suggests that it was pretty clear that they knew that they were in a rough spot mm. with, with the restrictions that had been put on Maria. Uh, I, I think that, that that settlement amount may have been as much related to the speech restrictions as it was to the failure to accommodate um, the, uh, the uh, disabilities. I couldn't agree with Dave more on that point. I think that, um, you know, these these issues of political speech, when does the First Amendment apply? Um, I, I tend to agree that this settlement was likely spurred by that fairly clear violation of her First Amendment rights as a public employee. We do need to take a quick break here. When we come back, Panera is in the hot seat over its charged lemonade. Is it fair to hold them accountable if people drank multiple glasses of this stuff? This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. I'm Sarah Fenske, in for Elaine Cha, hosting our Legal Roundtable. Now, we've got to talk about Panera, or as someone just tweeted at me, uh, you mean Breadco, right? I, of course I mean Breadco. I am St. Louis through and through. So let's talk about Breadco, St. Louis-based company. A second grieving family filed a lawsuit against the St. Louis company this past month over its charged lemonade. Now, first, a 21-year-old with a heart condition died after drinking the lemonade. She didn't know it was caffeinated. In this second case, a Florida man drank three glasses of it. Then he collapsed on his way home from Panera. And because of his high blood pressure, his family said he did not drink energy drinks. This lawsuit says these drinks are akin to an energy drink. These families are suing. Kalila, do you think they could have a good case here? Well, you know, the, the facts are still coming up, particularly on this, this uh, second case. But uh, there is this concept in the law of product liability, right? So that if you put a, uh, a product into the consumer stream and it's, uh, and it's found to be inherently dangerous or have defects, right, um, people, the, the, the corporation can be held liable if people are injured by that product. And so in this case, what the families are saying is that uh, you know while the the people may have they have 
yes, they drank the lemonade, but they didn't know. So they didn't know that there was these risks associated because either uh, Panera did not do enough or bread company, as it is affectionately, will always be my heart. Uh, bread company didn't do enough to tell people about, uh, to notify them that this lemonade was different than um, than other lemonades. That it was caffeinated, and not just caffeinated, but highly caffeinated compared to um, even, I think, you know, one of the lawsuits talk about uh, it's two or three times more caffeinated than a small cup of dark roast coffee, which is not uh, something that the average consumer is going to uh, necessarily appreciate unless they're uh, they are told and I know um, that bread company uh, when you know now I think now the the eliminators are behind the counter whereas before they were out front and people could get as many refills as they wanted on these charged lemonades now they're behind the counters and I think mm-hmm. they've actually done some of those warnings so we get used to seeing those warnings on, whether it's on television or in, in our you know our favorite uh, you know title and all our pain reliever whatever it is um, but they're there for a reason so that consumers can make informed decisions about the risks yeah so they added these warning labels just in October um, so this is long after this person in Florida had this fatal incident you know they're now saying use in moderation. Does that help or hurt Panera's case, Mark, that they had to start putting a warning label on something where the family would have said it should have been there from the beginning? Typically, typically you can't use, uh, you know, when you change something, you can't use that as evidence that you screwed up at the beginning. Having said that, um, when you look at, there's been a number of cases against like Monster Energy Drinks and Red Bull, and and those go both ways. Sometimes um, there was a case where jury... uh, deliberated for less than half an hour and came back for, uh, for I think it was Monster Energy or something like Said that. Said that they weren't liable. They weren't liable. Because mm-hmm. in most of these cases, the people have a pre-existing condition. Um, and, I mean, when you drink a Monster or Red Bull, you know it's, um, it's got caffeine. I think the real weakness here, here is, like we were saying during the break, it's lemonade. You know, and charged lemonade, I don't know what charged means. Um, does that mean... You put electricity in it. Is it supposed to make me feel good? And actually, you know, the cases against Red Bull, it was Red Bull gives you wings. The suggestion that it's somehow making you healthier, where I always thought, well, no, it gives you wings means it gets you all amped up on caffeine. Right. But, but um, and the level of caffeine, as Khalil said, is is really high, and you drink lemonade differently. So having said all that, I would... I would expect a settlement in these cases because they're not going to want to go to trial, and I think they've got some potential liability here. And um, and and these are just horrible situations where somebody, you know, is is really in bad shape because of it. So yeah, uh, you know, this is one of these where it's certainly eye-catching because you hear a man drops dead after he leaves Panera. This is bad publicity. I have to wonder how this charged lemonade got past the lawyers from the get-go, when, as you're saying, there have been all these cases against these energy drinks, and they must have known this was somewhat similar in its... Dave, somebody dropped the ball here. Someone very clearly dropped the ball here. I I think if I'm advising bread company in this situation, I think, uh, number one, apologize. Number two, settle quickly. Number three, move on. 
Well, I'm going to take that advice in terms of moving on because we do have a couple more interesting cases to talk about. One of them, in this past month, the city of St. Louis argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. That does not happen every day, even with all the litigation the city of St. Louis seems to be in lately. Um, they were there arguing that they did not discriminate against a female police officer. This is Sergeant Latanya Claiborne Muldrow. She was assigned to the department's intelligence division in 2017. She was later reassigned, replaced with a male officer who a police captain said could oversee the, quote, very dangerous work of street operations, according to court documents. So this uh, Sergeant Muldrow sued. Mark, what's what's at the heart of this dispute here? So first of all, it's important to remember this was a summary judgment. So the facts have not been established. We're kind of assuming the facts are in her favor. Having said that, certain facts were not alleged. So um, there's a lot of what are we really talking about here? And when you say this was a summary judgment, you mean the lower court basically dismissed this case before case. she could even get very it far. It said, even if what you said is true, um, you don't... And the, the issue was here that you have to, whether or not, that's the question, whether or not you have to prove that the transfer had some kind of, um, you know, uh, detrimental effect on you. And so the idea previously had been you had to have more than a, um, a minimus, de minimis kind of impact. So if you get transferred from this office to the office across the hall and you're transferred because you're a woman, um, I just, I'm your boss. I decide I want the men on this side and the women on this side just because I want that. Yeah. And, uh, but your, your office is identical. Is that enough to say it, to, to, to be able to proceed with the litigation? And the, the, St. Louis Police Department is arguing, no, that's not enough. You have to prove some harm. I have to prove, you have to prove that you were somehow harmed. So maybe it's you were stigmatized by, um, and then it becomes, maybe you don't know. I didn't tell you I put you over there because you're a woman. Um, whether that, but reading the, um, the oral argument, which just occurred like a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, the, we were talking about this before the show. I mean, some of the conservative justices seem to be suggesting you may, the, the idea that I did something to you just because of your sex, your gender, or because of your race even more so, um, that may be enough to show the harm, satisfy that harm requirement. Just by being singled out for, yeah. for that part of my identity. And they, and they made a couple of exceptions, like if I have a men's and a women's bathroom, okay, that's, or a different, um, uh, different uh, dress standards for men and women, but I have standards. Now, they said they said you you cannot do that based on race under any circumstances. But it's an interesting case because, you know, like many things, it's it comes down to one word, discriminate against, and what does that against mean? Um, and this is the kind of stuff that lawyers love to talk about and spend all day worrying about, and lay people just fall asleep when we talk about it because it's I, so I hope important. I hope you're not all falling asleep out there. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but they, like you said, we don't get to, the, St. Louis doesn't get the Supreme Court. Um, when you read it, I don't know if you caught this, um, Justice Thomas was referring to some streets in St. Louis, and the, so it's kind of like watching a TV show when they mention, you know, your, when it's said here, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Well, yeah. So, um, Dave, what's your sense of, you know, from listening to these oral arguments? Do you think the court is receptive um, to St. Louis trying to just get this dismissed, summarily gone? Uh, no, I, I think that they are um, pretty hostile to the position that the that the city was taking here. Right. I agree with um, that. And it, matter of fact, it seemed like only Justice Alito. 
um, was was kind of willing to to say, well, no, you actually have to show some kind of actual harm that has been suffered. And discrimination by itself is not enough, but um, you know, I'll I'll show my hand. My favorite justice right now is Justice Gorsuch um, because he's a textualist, and one of the things he did in the argument is he pointed out, look. The text of this statute says you can't discriminate against any individual with respect to compensation terms, conditions, or privileges of employment. The statute itself says discrimination is a harm that needs to be redressed. Um, and, and that was also picked up particularly by um, Justice Jackson, uh, but also almost surprisingly Justice Kavanaugh. Hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think that St. Louis is probably going to lose this case probably 8-1. Um, and I think you, that you that's— don't, You don't think Thomas might go with Alito? Thomas might go with Alito, but I don't think he will. Really? Yeah. So I'm not going to even try to predict where the Supreme Court goes. <laughs> Kalila, that is very intelligent yeah, right there. But, all, right. but I will say, I think that it is critical for the future of civil rights in this country that uh, there be a recognition that discrimination in and of itself is a harm. It is a psychic harm. It is a violation. And that in and of itself should be cognizable. I agree completely with what you said. But to give Justice Alito's argument, his argument is, um, well, if you if we allow these cases to get through and there's no injury, I moved you to the office, there's no injury. Well, we're then going to have this big lawsuit. We're going to tie up the courts. We're going to clog them up with these cases. And you still have to prove injury to have damages. And so at the end, we will have no damages. That's his argument. Yeah. I tend to agree with what you said, that we, we need to fight discrimination no matter what. Well, in fair housing, we have this concept of garden variety emotional distress damages, right? And so those are damages that just merely by being a victim, by right, being right. harmed in this way, right, that there is a recognition that that has harm and it's compensable and that it can be quantified and it has to be uh, remedied. So I would respectfully disagree with uh, Justice, Justice Alito, Alito, which I do a lot, um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll stop there. So one of the other elements of this that I think we need to be thinking about is particularly in the wake of the Harvard and North Carolina University um, admissions cases uh -huh. this last term, there uh, seems a very clear direction on the part of the current U.S. Supreme Court um, to challenge um, actions taken that are intended to assist at least certain racial minority groups. Um, and one thing we need to be aware of is if the case comes out the way I think it may, um, you may see some of the more conservative justices looking for ways to say, this also means you can't discriminate against white people. Oh. Um, and they may start policing Is that what Kavanaugh's preferential up to here? treatments. Um, it, it may be. Right. It, I, I don't know for sure. Well, you but already I, I want can't us to discriminate against white people. So I, th I think that's a, that's, that's, that's a false equivalency. That you can't discriminate against anybody on the basis of race. I'm just white, suggesting just this may be the new battleground that we're looking at. are less likely to be discriminated yeah. against on the basis of race. And I'd go a bit further than that. But I, I think that it's important to, to be clear and unequivocal. It's already unlawful to discriminate against anyone because of their race, whether regardless of what their, their uh, race is. But I, I've seen the same things in some of the law review articles, or not law review, law firms saying that they're warning that this may 
her DEI efforts, uh, and 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 that um, that's just something that may be coming down the pike. That would be opening Pandora's box on that front. That's right. interesting. So St. Louis ends up being maybe this test case that yeah. could end up. Man, some of these cases that St. Louis fights and, and keeps fighting, it's interesting that they took this all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Well, man, I mean, once again, there are so many cases to discuss in this town. I got to squeeze one in here in just our final minute. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey in the news again. He had somebody host a fundraiser for him um, who's fighting a decision by state regulators to suspend their operations for significant violations of Missouri's cannabis regulations. This is now the second time he's had uh, a large donation or a fundraiser from somebody that's, that's doing business with the state of Missouri. Kalila, in 30 seconds or less, do you think there's an ethical problem here? You know, I think anytime you have the appearance of impropriety, there's an ethical problem. Now, whether or not it rises to a, a uh, unlawful issue or a campaign violation is another question that I will defer to someone <laughs> with more knowledge in campaign finance regulations than myself. But I think that uh, you should always be mindful of the appearance of impropriety. And the other thing that I thought that was interesting is that they said that this particular donor doesn't donate a lot. Um, and I thought that that was an, an interesting thing to see if you can thread that needle to maybe something more significant. Yeah, for those who were listening, I believe it was last month. Um, this previous donation, it was a $50,000 donation from the Doe Run Company, and this is after the state filed an amicus brief on their behalf. It, you know, it is interesting. You can't say for sure what's going on there, but it sure doesn't look the way you would want the no, Missouri Attorney General's office to look. I want to thank our panel for being here today and sharing all their expertise. Kalila Jackson, uh, Director of Legal Services, Senior Staff Attorney at EHOC, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. And Mark Smith, former Associate Vice Chancellor at Washington University, teacher at Narang Hall High School. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And last but never least, Dave Rowland, Director of Litigation at the Freedom Center of Missouri. Thank you. Always a pleasure. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer and Sarah Vinsky. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Doerr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.